The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. My name is Andrea. Um, so the last few weeks, I think starting in early December, I've been kind of following a thread that came out of the question and answer period. And I feel like I came to the end of that thread, and I, I want to go back to where I was before, which was I was going over some of the kind of foundational teachings of the Buddha. And um, so I'd like to, to, to talk about some of that again this evening. And tonight, the main topic I'd like to talk about is the Eightfold Path. And um, I'd like to set it in the context of the Four Noble Truths, because the Eightfold Path is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. And so to provide a kind of a frame for this path, this Basically, the Buddha offered us a a set of practices, a set of tools that we can use to help ourselves be happier beings. Um, But it's within the context of a a larger um, understanding. And so I'll start by speaking just a little bit about that larger context of the Four Noble Truths. So just as a brief overview, the four I'll just state the Four Noble Truths. The, The truth of suffering the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the end of suffering. So, you know, suffering figures large in that list. It's, uh, it's in every one of those truths stated somehow, and that can turn people off a little bit or it can make people feel like, well, you know, what's this? Why is it so focused on, on suffering anyway? I mean, what's the big deal here? I mean, why, why is the whole path and the teaching, the, all of the truths, why is it so focused around suffering? And I think partly we need to look at what the Buddha was doing. You know, he was essentially, when he uh, explored his own experience and looked out into the world, he, uh, he saw that there's a lot of suffering out there. And his quest, his journey for understanding came about because he wanted to understand if it was possible to be free of that suffering, to be free of the way that we kind of habitually find ourselves stuck, struggling in our lives. And so the, the motivation for his whole journey had to do with understanding what is this suffering and is it possible to end it? And in his um, exploration, he found that, yes, it is possible to end it, but that it takes some understanding of the problem in order to understand how to end the problem. And so his, it, it makes sense to me when I look at what he was, how he was oriented in his search and his own question of what, what did, was he trying to understand. Um, it makes sense that his, his uh, teaching is framed in terms of that question, that question of suffering. So I, I really think that what the Buddha was doing was trying to to understand the core problem of human existence. You know, what, why do we struggle? This question was um, framed kind of poignantly by one seeker in the, de- the time of the Buddha. I'll read this to you. He came to the Buddha and he said, Beings wish to live without hate, harming, hostility, or enmity. They wish to live in peace. Yet they live in hate, harming one another, hostile and as enemies. Why do beings live in such a way? That's kind of the statement of the question the Buddha was looking at himself. You know, why, why do we suffer so much? Why do we live in a ways that are in such conflict? In his exploration of this, in his own exploration. He, he approached this problem by looking into his own mind and seeing, if I can understand in my own mind what the roots of suffering are in my own mind, might it find a way, might it produce a path for others to find 
their own way out of suffering as well. And so he did this through an inward journey, through an inner exploration. He approached this, this question through an inward journey. And in this inward journey, it's, it seems that one of the things the Buddha recognized is that the very way that beings go about trying to find happiness, the very way that we think happiness comes about, is actually exactly the wrong thing to be doing if we really want to deeply be happy. That the way that we typically engage in our lives what our beliefs are about what happiness is and how it comes to be is turned on its head. And so he recognized actually that the whole way that we go about our lives is, it's, it's twisted, it's, it's confused. And he, um, in his early days it said, in his early days after his awakening it said he thought, wow, you know, this is really subtle, this understanding that I've come to. And not many people would understand it. Not many people would be able to appreciate this shift of perspective. So I don't think I can teach this to anybody. But thank goodness he changed his mind. (laughs) So so, um, there is the recognition in the very first days of the Buddha's awakening, that what he's teaching is not something that's easy for us to hear. It's not something that's necessarily easy for us to see or understand. So um, I'd like to explore this a little bit with you. Now to to talk a little bit about this shift of perspective because the Eightfold Path is essentially the path he offers us in terms of the path to walk in order to to make this shift, in order to see, in order to understand from this new perspective how we might actually be happier in our lives instead of struggling all the time. So, um, you know, when we look at what we basically believe about happiness, what we basically believe happiness is, um, you know, it kind of is around thinking that we need to somehow arrange our environment, arrange our world, so that it's some, some way that we like it to be. You know, whether it's um, material things that we have that we like surrounding us. You know, it, it includes both having things that we like and getting rid of things that we don't like. You know, that when there's something... That, that's been my, my, um, my mode of operation, I think. You know, that, that's kind of my habitual mode. Is If I can only get rid of all of these unpleasant things, then I'll be happy. Some other, other people have a different perspective. They have the perspective, if only I can get all of these things that I want, then I'll be happy. So there's the material world that we try to control. And there's also... Um, you know, there's also the uh, the world of our identity. You know, we we also think that having a certain identity will make us happy. Being seen in a certain way, being respected, admired, um, having people like us, we uh, we also think that happiness will come from that as well. So it's sort of by acquiring. We think that happiness comes by acquiring things that are pleasant, getting rid of things that are unpleasant. And if we look at what is actually happening there, and if we look at what's going on there, um, and this is where the Buddhist shift of perspective is, it's it's a little hard to see, but, um, you know, when we... The Buddha proposed that in that very way of trying to be happy, in that very way of getting things, arranging the world to try to be happy, that we are hooking ourselves to a process of struggle, 
already. We're hooking ourselves to a process of suffering, disappointment, dissatisfaction, unease, just by the very act of trying to arrange the world so that we can be happy. He says, within that very process lies the seeds of our own struggle. So if we think about it, and reflect on it a little bit, if we are trying to get something, arrange the world to be in a certain way, trying to get things that we like, and we don't get them, well, the struggle is already apparent right then and there. If we're hoping that people will have a certain opinion of us and they don't have that opinion of us, we already have the struggle right then and there. So that's one way in which that process leads us to struggle. Then, you know, the other side of it is, well, what if we do manage to get what we want? We do manage to have people like us or convince them that they, you know, they should have this opinion about us or um, we get rid of the things we don't like, we have the things that we like. So why is that a problem? The problem there lies in, or that the, the suffering that, that comes about there lies in the way that we relate to those things that we have. So we get those things, and what seems to happen to us in that, you know, getting the things we like, getting rid of the things we don't like, what seems to happen is that we think, yes, I've figured it out. This is the way it's supposed to be. Now I'm happy. Now I'm going to be happy and, and part of our minds tells us, I'm going to be happy forever. You know, I'm, this is it. I figured it out. I'm never going to be unhappy again. Now, we may not really, you know, believe that all the way down, but some part of us has that, that feeling. You know, it's, it's actually quite amazing to, to see how the mind will convince us in this moment, because we're happy in this moment, that this means I figured it out and I'm never going to be unhappy again. And yet the law of impermanence will take hold at some point, will take effect at some point. The things that we've acquired will fade, will disintegrate, will disappear. They may get lost or stolen. They may just get broken. Uh, or it may be that our, our, our infatuation our infatuation with them goes away, and so they're no longer so enchanting. You know, so it's like, oh, that thing. Oh, yeah, that used to make me really happy. No. Maybe I can find something else to make me really happy. So the, the kind of the law of impermanence takes effect on our material, the, the, the material realm. And in the realm of um, the way other people think about us, you know, this is a real area that helps to reflect on because, you know, the, the idea that happiness comes from having other people think certain things about us means that we are placing our um, ability or our mode for happiness in the hands of others. You know, we're... we're, we're we are giving them the power over our own happiness when we do that. How controllable are the uh, opinions of other people? You know, they change. People think different things. One day somebody may like you. The next day they may be frustrated or angry with you. So the, the process of, of getting what we want, I mean, actually this is where we get hooked because, you know, when we get what we want, we have somebody think what we'd like to have them think about us. You know, it feels good. It feels like, yeah, I figured it out. It's right now. This is the way it's supposed to be. And so we, we have a there's, a, there's a, there's a hook there that we believe that this is the way it's supposed to be. And then when impermanence takes effect and the, we discover that that doesn't stay the same, we suffer because we think, I failed somehow, or the world is conspiring against me somehow. You know, that, that why me? Why, why, why do I have to suffer this loss? 
We all have to suffer our own losses. So, and then there's the then there's the another kind of suffering that uh, is is more um, you know so so the kinds of suffering I've talked about there, you know the that's it that's that part's. kind of understandable in terms of how our own relationship to our material things, our opi- what the opinions are or others. It's, it's kind of the, the suffering that comes there has to do with how we relate to the things and to the opinions of other people. If we somehow believe we have to have these things or that people have to think these things about us, those very beliefs, our own view, our own belief, our own opinion, our own idea in our mind is what's keeping us um, tied into this cycle of struggle. It's, it's the belief that I have to have this thing. It's the belief that I have to have this opinion that somebody else has that's kind of at the the root of this problem. And the Buddha, the Buddha phrased this by saying it is wanting. It's wanting the good opinion. It's wanting to have the things, wanting to get rid of things. It's the wanting, it's, it's the wanting that's the source of our suffering. It's not the having the things. Now this is where, this is I think a place where people maybe have a slight misunderstanding or misconception of what the Buddha is talking about when he talks when he talks about wanting being the source of the suffering it's not it's not that having things is a problem but it is a way that we that that the wanting around that is sticky that we feel like we have to have it it's not okay if i don't have this if somebody doesn't have this opinion of me it's not okay if I don't have this thing in my life. So there's a kind of a stickiness about our wanting. So the, that as we get things, you know, it's the, and there's that, that kind of holding on to things once we have them, saying, yes, this is right, this is, this is the way it is. If I don't have it this way, then I'm a failure. So that the, the stickiness creates this belief around what we have to have, what we need to get rid of. So it's that stickiness, actually, that is the the source or the root of our struggles, of our suffering. So the, the, this, and this is actually, this is a fundamental key place where the Buddha pointed to this shift of perspective, this shift of where he said, you know, this is going to be hard for people to understand this. That rather than happiness coming from endlessly trying to get things, he said it's actually turned around that happiness, a true happiness, comes when we let go of needing to have things be a certain way. We let go of that wanting. So the, the Buddha proposed that it's possible to have a kind of happiness that comes from letting go of wanting, letting go of needing to have things be a certain way. So this is the second noble truth. The first noble truth is really this, just this description of there is suffering in our lives. When we, you know, as I was describing, you know, when we, we want something and we don't get it, there's suffering right there. If we want something and we do get it, then there's suffering involved if we're holding on to that thing. If we get that thing and we think, this is it, I, I need this thing, I need this opinion, I need this view, I need this, this car, I need this house, I need this relationship in order to be happy, then we're holding on to it, we're clinging to it. And the law of impermanence means that we may not be able to have that in our lives forever. 
And so we will suffer if we're holding on to it, thinking that our happiness depends on that thing. So this is how this clinging, this wanting, is, is the, right at the source of our suffering. So this is the second noble truth, that suffering is caused by wanting. Now this, um, this understanding um, is... It's, it's, a, it's a deep shift of perspective that the Buddha is proposing here. You know, and it is... Um, it's not just around having things that it's ta- he's talking about this. I mean, this, this even involves or includes the kind of suffering that would come if somebody is behaving really um, inappropriately or violently. You know, the kind of, the kind of suffering that comes there. You know, there's, 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 two, there's two kinds of... Um, two aspects of suffering one aspect that we you know may not that we can't do anything about the physical you know the actual physical uh, pain that may be suffered you know we we might get into a car accident or um, somebody may be cruel to us and there is going to be some kind of difficult experience that arises because of that. You know, especially the physical side of the, of the suffering. You know, that, that kind of suffering is not going to go away with not wanting. I mean, the, our bodies are designed to produce pain. You know, if we, if we get in a car accident, pain is inevitable. The suffering that the Buddha was talking about here uh, the suffering of this first noble truth and the suffering that's caused by wanting is about, it's, again, it's about our relationship to our experience. So it's about the, um, our reactivity around the pain that we may have. You know, the, Again, the why me, the this isn't right, it's not supposed to be like this. The anger, the frustration, the hatred, the judgment, all of those emotions around situations, around accidents or illnesses or harm that comes to you, all of that reactivity is actually optional and when and when you start to look at and when you start to feel that reactivity itself and you get a taste over time through practice you you begin to get a taste of what it might mean to not be reactive to not be angry to not be judgmental to not hate someone who is causing you pain you see that that extra reactivity is like the Buddha called it like adding a second arrow of pain to an already unpleasant situation. And that reactivity is something that is optional. And thank goodness it's optional, actually. If it were, if it were that we had no choice if you know we get into a into some kind of a car accident and we have to be angry and hate things and be frustrated and miserable in our minds there wouldn't be much hope for us but it is possible to shift our perspective around the pain and not be reactive so this is where the wanting comes in, that essentially when there's that kind of a situation, the wanting the pain to not be there is actually a huge extra source of suffering. It's counterintuitive to truly understand that. It's counterintuitive to think about that. It's counterintuitive to, to grok it intellectually. 
But when you actually start to look in your own practice and look in your own mind and see the possibility, you, you begin to see through the practices that the, the Buddha offers, you begin to see this possibility of what might it be to just be here with this physical pain and see if I can notice the anger without feeding it with thoughts. What, what might that mean? And when you get a taste of that non-reactive mindfulness meeting physical pain, you get a taste of what it might mean to be able to rest in the space of this unpleasant bodily experience is happening, but not hate it, not be angry about it, not be miserable thinking, why me? When all of that mental reactivity goes away, there's a huge feeling of ease and peace, even when the body is physically suffering. So this is the shift that the Buddha was talking about. So the, all of those emotional reactivities are essentially rooted in some kind of wanting, either wanting to get rid of something or wanting to hold on to something. And this is where the, the deeper teaching around wanting comes in. So the second noble truth, suffering is caused by wanting. And his proposal is that letting go of this wanting is the, the place where ease, where peace comes. And just, you know, just think about some situation in which you'd really like, you really want something to be happening. You know, where it just seems like it's not okay if this thing doesn't happen. Or if you don't get that thing. And now just imagine what it might mean for that wanting to go away. What might it mean if you didn't want that? Would there be a problem if the wanting were gone? This is a pointing to the third noble truth, the possibility of the ending of this suffering. And the Buddha points to the fact that since this wanting is deeply rooted, connected with the causing of our suffering, if we can let go of that wanting, when we release that wanting, we can feel the release of struggle, the release of suffering. So he points to this possibility, this possibility of peace. Peace is possible. This is the third noble truth. And then he says, and there's a way. It's not, it's not random. It's not, it's not simply a random thing that uh, we can come to this peace. There's actually things that we can do, steps that we can take, actions that we can take to cultivate this peace. And this is the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path. So this is basically a set of practices that will lead to this peace lead to this shift of perspective around what real happiness is. And so these first two noble truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, they're kind of the, the way we normally engage in our lives. You know, that, that we want things. We, it's this cycle of wanting things and having things or wanting to get rid of things. And that feeling of, oh, I figured it out. And, and then because we figured it out, it's like, oh, that's right. And then when that kind of happiness of that having goes away, it's like, well, there's, the last time I was happy was when I had something. So maybe I need to have something again. And we just get caught on this cycle. So those first two noble truths kind of describe how we typically live our lives. The second two noble truths, the truth uh, that there's a possibility that suffering can end and the path leading to that ending of suffering is a kind of the possibility that of a different way to live our lives. So the Eightfold Path is really this different possibility, this different way to live our lives. So the Eightfold Path, just to state the factors, and I'm just going to you know, briefly go through this and give you a sense of how it works 
You know, how, how does it work for us? What, what is, how does it help us, these practices? So the, the factors of the Eightfold Path are wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So that's the typical order in which they are expressed, and it begins with this place of understanding, wise understanding and wise intention. It's the place where this path begins. So it starts, actually, the path begins when we have some exposure to this new framework that the Buddha offered, this new perspective of what is happiness, what... and, and, and how does our usual framework around happiness get us caught, get us stuck? So the Buddha's um, wise understanding, this wise view, is about having a little bit of a, a sense of this shift of perspective, getting a little bit of an understanding of this shift of perspective. How do we get this shift of perspective? It's, it's a little bit by understanding the Four Noble Truths, by understanding how this cycle of suffering works, how we get caught, and how this possibility might be of getting out of this cycle of suffering. So that's, that's actually the definition. The main definition of wise understanding is to understand something about these Four Noble Truths, to understand something about how suffering is caused, to understand something about how it might be possible for suffering to end, understand something about how this cycle of wanting traps us. So initially, this understanding, this, this, uh, this wise understanding, is it's something that we hear about, perhaps, or something that we read about, something that we take in as a teaching, that we hear something about. Just like this evening, I presented a little bit about this path, this cycle of suffering, how we get stuck there. So, you know, that, that goes in a little bit, perhaps. You reflect on it, you think about it. So initially, that's the way this path begins, is by hearing something of this understanding. You begin to take it in, in your mind, think about it. Think about how might it apply to me? How might this make sense to me? Or maybe it doesn't make sense at all to me. So what, what, how might I engage with this? Does it make sense for me to engage with this? Given if it does make sense, if there is some resonance with what the Buddha offers as an understanding around suffering, there might be uh, an intention that's born to engage. Well, it sounds like, well, actually for me, the intention that was born was, it it went kind of like this. I don't have a clue how this is going to work. Doesn't make any sense to me what he's describing. But nothing else has worked I might as well give it a try. (laughs) So, you know, for me, that was how my intention went. You know, I was like, okay, you know, somebody says it's helpful. I'll give it a try. (laughs) You know, I I didn't really understand how it worked until I actually began playing with the practices themselves. And then within actually a pretty short time, I could see directly for myself how this worked, how this wanting sucked me in. I could see for myself how mindfulness, being attentive to my experience, was immensely helpful in helping me let go of ways that I was caught in suffering, in anger, in agitation. So it didn't take very long for me to see the benefits. So this hearing this teaching, having this intention born, the second factor of the Eightfold Path, this intention born to take a step on the path, 
within a short time, I began to see some benefits. Began to understand more directly for myself some of what the Buddha offered, some of the teachings that he had to say. Understood for myself how my own mind contributed to my suffering. How my own mind hooked me into patterns of anger and frustration and, and feelings of loneliness. So I began to understand that directly. And this is, I think, a lot of how this path works. So, you know, the, 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 these factors of wise understanding and wise intention are at the beginning of the path. But they also carry us all the way through the path. And we deepen our understanding as we travel this path, as we engage in the practices that the Buddha suggests of mindfulness, of energy, of wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, as we engage in that, we begin to see some results, we begin to see some benefits, we begin to verify the truth of what is being taught. So that then kind of, I I think of the Eightfold Path as a cycle, it spirals back on itself. Because with that deepened understanding, that actual direct experiential understanding, it fuels more intention. When I had that, when I had an early experience of really directly seeing how my mind was headed down a pathway to anger, and the mind could see that and let it go, and I could see that the mind. In the moment, I directly experienced the freedom from a suffering that I would have had had I not been paying attention, had I not been practicing. If I'd not been practicing, I would have gone right down that pathway to anger all over again. Having seen it, I could see the mind let go of that direction. That moment gave me a strong incentive to keep practicing. That moment was like one of my early core insights. It's like when I saw that in my own mind, I knew in that moment, I'm going to do this path. It's like, oh my gosh, this stuff is really powerful. I can't believe I I could see that. I can't believe the possibility that these tools offered to be able to see into my mind and allow me to be free that way. So... It fuels this path to have some verified experience for us. And so these uh, first two aspects of the path, wise understanding and wise intention, can kind of be said to both begin and end the path. They're carried through the path, all the way through the path. So once we have a... um, this kind of reflective understanding, if we are inclined to engage to set our intention to act, to move onto the path. You know, partly because the, the, the exploration here has to do with suffering. You know, it has to do with how can I let go of the ways that I end up struggling and suffering? How can I move more towards happiness? The next three factors of the Eightfold Path are really about... Uh, shifting our behavior in the world so that our behavior in the world doesn't contribute to suffering in the world. So these, these aspects of wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood are, are really the ethical component of the path about can I engage, I mean, the intention to engage in a path of freeing myself from suffering means that it would be really helpful to let go of the ways in which I'm contributing to suffering in the world. And so this, these are some simple practices the Buddha suggests. Don't cause harm with your speech or action. Don't cause harm with your livelihood. This ethical component of the path is really about non-harming, about not... Um, it's, it's about kind of cleaning up our relationship with our uh, fellow human beings, with our fellow beings on this planet. So the mental shift of wise intention kind of orients us towards hoping, wishing to behave in a way that won't cause harm 
So that's an orientation that we take on these practices. The next um, aspects of the Eightfold Path and, and you know, I, I like the, 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 the term eightfold path because, you know, talking about it in a sequence like this, you might think, well, first I need to understand the teachings and then I need to start cleaning up my speech and then my action, you know, kind of doing it in stepwise fashion. But I like the fact that it's called the eightfold path. You know, when I, get, when I get that image, the eightfold path, I think of them all folded on top of each other. And they are intimately connected. You know, as, you're, as you are exploring wise speech, for instance, as you're exploring how to be skillful in speaking in the world, you're cultivating wise mindfulness. You're cultivating wise effort. You're cultivating um, wise understanding and wise intention. So they're, they're all coming together as we practice, each one of those paths. So they're folded on top of each other. They're not separate. We don't do one and then say, check, did that one, and then go on to the next one. It really is a, a cycle and a spiral and, you know, folded together. So the next aspect and the next section of the Eightfold Path is, has to do with our mental development. And this section of the Eightfold Path is really about cleaning up our relationship with our own minds. You know, the ethical conduct aspect of the Eightfold Path is about cleaning up our relationship with our fellow human beings. The mental cultivation aspect is about cleaning up our relationship with our minds. This one um, teacher, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, sometimes talks about how it feels like there's whole committees in our mind. I don't know if any of you have that sense, you know? It's like, yeah, there's somebody over here arguing one point and somebody over here arguing some other point and they're like battling each other and I should do this, no, I should do this. Oh, you shouldn't do that. You should never have done that. That was really stupid. Well, that's our minds. You know, we, we argue internally, we berate ourselves, we judge ourselves, we, we, we feel like we're the greatest thing in, since sliced cheese. You know, it's like we, we, we have these relationships with ourselves. And a lot of our suffering actually comes from those committees and the, the conflict, the inner conflict. And so this aspect of mental cultivation, of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration begins to address this, this inner conflict. And this is really where the um, some of the benefit of these practices can be felt because we start to see so clearly through being mindful, through applying effort, through understanding what's helpful to cultivate, what's not helpful. You know, where do we want to apply our effort? We want, do we want to continue to feed the patterns of anger and hatred and judgment or do we want to feed the patterns of generosity and kindness and compassion so this this is where do we want to put our effort where do we want to put our energy this is wise energy it's looking at how we want to direct our our attention then mindfulness the the seeing what's going on in our minds actually looking at what's going on in our minds and then the uh, wise concentration, which is, you know, I, I like to think of concentration as being the, the thing that hones our mindfulness. It's what allows our mindfulness to, to really see more clearly. Concentration could be defined as a mindfulness that's stable in the moment. So that... It's not that mindfulness is kind of coming and going, this awareness of what's happening while it's happening. But there's more of a sense of a pervading sense of awareness of what's happening to us over time. It's not kind of popping in and out. That's a form of concentration, the stability of mindfulness. So these tools 
of mindfulness, of effort, of concentration, are the tools that essentially allow us, first of all, to look into how our minds are doing what they're doing, to look into those committees and how they argue and get all tied up with each other. And they're also the tools that allow us to actually restructure the inner workings of our mind. This is really the power of what this practice offers. We can restructure how our minds work. It doesn't feel like that initially. I mean, you know, when we, we, we all have this notion of certain ruts that we get into, certain patterns or um, habitual um, ways that we react. One of my favorites was anger. You know, that was a, a really well-greased pathway. Pretty much, you know, didn't take much for that pathway to be engaged. I could, I could just go right there. So, um, you know, we've practiced. Everybody has their own favorite ruts that they practice. It may be depression, it may be loneliness, it may be fear, it might be anxiety, it might be anger, it might be hatred. Whatever it is for you, there is a possibility of restructuring that, of not having that be a kind of automatic fallback in your experience. So the, uh, you know, the, the, the way this unfolds, the way this, we explore this, you know, it, it, again, this is counterintuitive. It's not something that we would necessarily say, oh yeah, I'll sign up for this. You know, it's like the way that the, the Buddha recommended is you know, these patterns, these ruts that we get into often are felt as suffering. They're often felt as, you know, at least for me, you know, my pattern of anger. I could feel that there was suffering there. I mean, I, I often put the suffering out in the world. It's, it's you that's making me angry. You know, I, I gave the power away. You know, I believed that, I, that, that other people had that power to make me angry. Through this practice, I began to understand that the way people have that power is if I offer it to them. If I give them that power. So this uh, practice, this exploration, is to begin to understand, essentially, how do we give away our power? How do we let other people make us react? So the exploration first is to be willing to explore the reactivity itself. To be willing to be mindful, attentive to anger, frustration, irritation, hostility, judgment, anxiety, whatever it is. The willingness to pay attention to that, learn what we can about it. The, the way this path unfolds is through this inner exploration, this learning of how our minds work. The very learning of how our minds work, the very seeing of how anger is created or how anxiety is created, that very learning gives the mind... What's so amazing to me is that when the mind sees how it creates its own suffering, when the mind sees how anger is created, how anxiety is created, how frustration is created, when the mind really understands that, first of all, it understands that that reactivity is painful. It's not well-being. It's not a place where the mind and body really want to go when we see, when we felt into it. And so that's part of the practice, to feel into the suffering of that reactivity. And then as the mind begins to see how that reactivity is created, it begins to understand on its own how to let go of it. That's what I saw in my, in my very first few months of practice. 
very clearly saw that just the willingness to observe my anger over and over and over again began to change how my mind related to anger and how my mind related to the things that would send me into anger. It, just that understanding of this anger is suffering began to shift my relationship to it. So that's a part of this process. We bring mindfulness to our suffering. We explore it. We get to know it. We understand it. This understanding leads us to see how our mind is doing it. It's, it's you know, how is our mind kind of offering the button of anger to somebody to push? You know, how's our mind doing that? We begin to see that. The mind then stops making that offer. <laughs> it's like, I don't think I'll put that out there. So this restructuring is possible with, the, with these tools of the Eightfold Path. And it does take time. You know, it's not, it's not something that happens, you know, just in one attempt at paying attention to some difficult experience. But we do... I mean, as I said, like early in my practice, within the first few months of my practice, I really began to see deeply the benefits of these practices. And that gave me the, the motivation to continue because I saw the possibility. And you too can see this possibility. You can see that through bringing your mindful attention to your experience, you can start to see the possibility of how the mind can start to shift its relationship to the struggle, the suffering. So I've taken the entire time, so there's no time for questions today. But I'm going to continue talking about the Eightfold Path next week, so I will leave some time for questions next week. So thank you.